Heavenly Father, thankful, Father, for the baptisms this morning, for the men and women who, over this weekend, answered your call of obedience. Thank you for that encouragement to all of us, Father. As simple as it is to step into a pool of water, it certainly asks something of each person. It asks that commitment, that profession of faith, that testimony. And in hindsight, Father, after we take a step like that, we ask ourselves, why did we think that was so hard? It was so easy, after all. And isn't that the way it is, Father, when we follow you in every step of our lives? We always think about obedience as such a difficult task, and yet, Father, as we take a step in that direction and you show up and you provide all the grace and power and, and uh, ability we need, we look back later and we realize that wasn't so hard. It just took a moment, a commitment, a desire, a willingness to follow. And Father, we know that. We see it in lives around us. We see it in our own life. And I ask, Father, as we study into this scripture this morning, you would propel our hearts forward by what we learn. Give us greater confidence, greater encouragement to obey and to understand the things you've provided in your word for us and to see them personally so that we don't look at them academically and from a distance. But we embrace them as you have intended, written for our sake, intended to mature us into the man or woman of Christ that you have called us to be. That's why we're here this morning, Father. Bless us with that outcome. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us for a while in this study, up through the end of 16, you'll know what I mean when I say that the disciples have received a whirlwind of introduction to the kingdom program. This has been a nonstop traveling, teaching, miracles, parables, and it's happened in a relatively short period of time. It all began after Israel rejected Jesus in chapter 12, and he formally withdrew the offer of the kingdom from that generation of Israel, and in its place, he's been preparing these men, his apostles, to begin something new and different called the kingdom program. And through a series of experiences and lessons, he has been showing these men what it's gonna mean to serve him in a period of history while we still await the return of Christ and the actual literal physical kingdom on earth. And when you think about everything he said and done, these guys, their, their heads must have been swimming, honestly. I don't think they had a clue which way was up at about this point. And the most challenging thing they've heard so far came right at the end of chapter 16, which is where we've just been, when Jesus said that I'm not gonna establish the literal kingdom on earth, not in this day, not yet. Instead, I'm gonna establish something different called the church. And he says, I'm gonna base this new entity not on tribal identity, but rather on a faith, on a confession, which Peter modeled for us, having faith revealed by the Father to each person. And then he goes a step further and he designates Peter as the, the uh, one who will usher in this new entity and he will move it out across different nations of people. And after it's planted, Jesus says, not even the power of hell will be able to prevail against this thing that we're gonna establish together. Now that is not what these Jewish men were expecting because in their mind, they were expecting a literal physical kingdom with the Messiah reigning from the seat of David in Jerusalem just as has been promised. And that is still coming. We're not saying it's not coming. What we're saying, though, is it didn't come right away. It wasn't the plan. So Jesus has told them things that, honestly, they just can't bear. It doesn't make sense. It's not resonating with them. And so he has told them, in order for me to bring this church into existence, there's one more thing you need to know, and it was the worst of all. He says, I'm going to have to die. Now, that made no sense. 
You can't start a church without the Messiah. You can't start a kingdom without a Messiah. You can't have a king, a kingdom without a king. Nothing made sense. So that's when Peter said no. That's when Jesus had to step in and rebuke him. And that's when Jesus told the rest of these guys, you need to stop prioritizing this life over the next one. You need to flip that around. You need to be willing to lose this life for the sake of the next one. Now, that moment, which we finished with last week, it illustrates a big problem. And here's the problem. They could not appreciate how serving Jesus in this new program called the church could be compatible with everything they assumed, everything they had heard from their Old Testament. The two just weren't meeting in their minds. And if these guys are going to do what they've been called to do as leaders in the church, that has to make sense. I mean, after all, they're the ones who wrote it for us. They're the ones who taught us about it. And Jesus knew that, so he has to fix this problem. So when they hear that he's going to die soon in Jerusalem, that just rattles them, and they, 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 they can't get past that concern. If he doesn't address that issue right now, they're not listening to anything else he says. And so they knew that if their rabbi was destined to be killed, they as the disciples of that man would likely be threatened as well. And more importantly, if your king is dying, what does it say about your kingdom? If your rabbi, your Messiah is gone, what does that say about your own opportunity to enter the kingdom? Is this whole thing about to fall apart? And so what Jesus does in this next section today is address those concerns, but he does it in a very unique way. And it starts in verse 28, Matthew 16, 28. He says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, let's park on that just for a moment. And as you look at the statement, look at how it opens. He says, truly I say to you. That's a phrase you've heard him use before. It's in the Bible, in the Gospels periodically. And it literally just says, believe what I'm about to tell you, but that's not why he says it, because obviously he he expects them to believe everything he says. It's not as though this is the only thing you should believe. Why does he then use that opening statement? It's Jesus' way of introducing a new topic. It's a mile marker in the text that tells you something's changing. He's moving in a new direction for the moment. Now notice what he had just said the moment earlier. In verse 27, he had been speaking about his coming in his glory to set up the kingdom and to judge all humanity when he did that, repaying them all for their deeds. And he had just said that because he was trying to encourage those men to have eyes for eternity, to think about that moment, not to worry about today, worry about that moment so that you'll live the right way now. All right, that's where he had been. But in reassuring these men that his death was part of the program and not a threat to the plan, He needs to give them the next piece to that puzzle. Why is death a part of the plan? How does it fit in? They needed not to fear that. They needed not to be concerned about that. And so to encourage them on that point a step further, Jesus pivots off of this conversation of his coming and glory and goes in a slightly new direction. So in my own words, this is what he says in verse 28. He says, speaking of me coming in my glory, some of you will not taste death before you get to see me in my power as a king. So he's taken that first idea and moved it a slightly different direction. So in my English translation, it literally says, you will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's what I read to you. But in the original Greek language that Matthew wrote in, the word for kingdom is is not that specific. In fact, it could have been translated in my reign or in my royal power. In fact, some of your Bible translations may actually say that instead because the word is not so much kingdom but reigning or power. So what Jesus is doing in that statement is he's distinguishing between what he said in 27 and what he's now saying in 28. In verse 27, he said, when the Son of Man comes in the kingdom, he will repay everyone. And he then says, and 
you, some of you, will not taste death until you see me in that power, in my royal power. And he's saying it that way, of course, because he knows that he cannot promise these men that the kingdom will show up in their lifetime. It did not show up in their lifetime. In fact, it has not shown up in our lifetimes. We are still waiting for that physical kingdom. When I say physical, I mean Jesus on earth, reigning as a king over nations, you know, a kingdom. That we still wait on. So what he could tell them is this. You may not see the kingdom in your lifetime, but you will see my victory. You will see me ascend to my place of reigning in a very short time. You notice he uses the term tasting death in verse 28. I think that's a tie-in to their concerns about his death. I mean, he knows their hearts. They're worrying about this statement he's already made about his own death, and he's saying, look, guys, don't worry about death stopping anything. This prophecy will happen. And so he says, in a very short time, you will see me reigning. But here's the detail that they needed to grasp. Jesus' first realm of reigning is not the realm of the earth. He begins his rule. He ascends to the position at the right hand of the Father in another realm first and stays there for a time before moving to this earth to finish his reign on earth. That was blowing their minds. That was brand new. They did not understand that part of the plan. That's what he has to get across. Now, think about all that we just covered in that brief moment, this brief introduction. The fact that death was part of the plan, the fact that it would have to happen first before he could reign, the fact that his reigning would begin in heaven, and then it would move to earth at some later point, and that in the meantime, they had a role of serving this program called the church, which would occupy the space between those two moments and so on. You know, you can grasp that with me here this morning because you have this, and you have 2,000 years of church teaching and, and history behind us. That is, we've come now to understand those things with all of that background. These guys, they don't have any of that yet. So how do you communicate all of that in a relatively short time? Because in a few months, Jesus is going to be gone. Well, as the old saying goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. And so what Jesus does in the next moment is he embarks on the teaching of these concepts, at least to begin that process, with a powerful picture that begins to show it all to these men. That's what opens in chapter 17. Let's go there, verse one. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. That's your scene. That's your picture. Notice it starts with Matthew saying, six days later. Now that's important. These events happened six days after what we just read at the end of chapter 16. And gospel writers, generally speaking, they don't give exact time references like this very often. And so when they do, it tells us there's something important about that. Usually it's given in relationship to some Jewish feast because there's a connection between the events and the meaning of a feast. But in this case, that's not the the situation. We don't even know what month this is. So we don't see any connection here with any ongoing Jewish calendar events. So What that tells us is this moment, being six days after the earlier moment, is Matthew's way of saying to us, these two things are connected. This was said, and then this happened. And just in case we didn't catch that clue, Luke gives it to us even more plainly. He introduces this same moment by writing, and it came to pass, which is his way of saying, as he said it, then it happened. So what you're seeing here is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus just gave to these men 
at the end of chapter 16. Well, how does this fulfill his promise that they would see him coming in his reign or coming in his power and glory? Well, it starts with Jesus segregating or selecting three men among all of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, and they go up together on a high mountain. Now, we'll talk more about why he selected those three in our next lesson, but for now, let's just focus on what happens to these men. We don't know where this is. The high mountain's not given to us in the Bible. We know that at the end of 17, they were in Caesarea Philippi, very northern extreme of Israel today. And nearby is Mount Hermon, which is the tallest mountain in all the Middle East. So that's a good assumption. Maybe they just went to the nearby tall mountain. But we're told it happened six days later. And you can go a long way in six days. You can get all the way across the Galilee in six days. So it could have been any tall place in the Galilee. The fact that it's not given to us, it just means it doesn't matter. The point is not where. The point is what happened. And so they go up this mountain with Jesus, and at some point, Jesus enters into a glorified state. Now, the other Gospels tell us that these guys, Peter, James, John, they were sleeping, and they come up out of their sleep to see this thing. And you can imagine, right? They're like, am I still sleeping? Is this really happening? Do you guys see this too? And they're just awestruck. They see Jesus glorified. In fact, Matthew says Jesus is transfigured into his glory. Now, the word in Greek for transfigured is metamorpho, and I'll give you one guess what other English word we get from the same root, metamorphosis, right? That's a word that indicates a complete change in appearance. So here's what I want you to understand. If, if you're one of these people that has a painting of Jesus in your house, let me, first of all, that's not what Jesus looked like, so you might as well put any name, it could be Barney, it's not Jesus, it's just a picture. But if you have a picture of Jesus on your, on your wall, and when you read this, if you imagine in your mind that picture, but like backlit, you know, like a glow around him or something. No, no, no. I mean, even, though, even if assuming the picture was right, no, that's not what we're talking about. Transfigured means like, like caterpillar to butterfly. He looks totally different. It doesn't appear as Jesus anymore. And although Matthew only gives us his brief description, as do the other gospel writers, John in another book, gives us a much more complete description of what Jesus looks like when he's glorified. We get this out of Revelation, chapter one. In speaking about what John sees there, he he describes Jesus' glorified appearance this way. He says, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Uh, I mean, how can you look at the sun? Imagine trying to look at someone who's as bright as the sun. It's just overwhelming. That's how he appeared. So that description in John's experience is consistent with what you see referenced here in Matthew and in the other gospel writers. They just have bits and pieces, but it mirrors the same description. So in all likelihood, that's what they were seeing, transfiguration of Jesus. And by the way, in case you doubt that this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said at the end of chapter 16, Luke gives us another clue here. Luke says, they saw Jesus' glory. That's how he puts it. So this is an appearance of Jesus in his royal power, in his place as a reigning king. Simply put, he looked one way on his first coming, he looks this way at his second coming. And curiously, they also see next to Jesus these other two figures, these biblical characters talking to Jesus, and the gospel writers name them as Moses 
and Elijah. And we're told that these men appear in glory. Luke says they appear in glory. Now, there's an important caveat when we hear that because Jesus being glorified is one thing. This is the creator God in his divine power demonstrated in this glorious appearance, bright as the sun. Then there's the glory of someone like you or me or Moses or Elijah, the glory that we will attain to one day as a result of God taking us out of this body and giving us a new one. Will we glow? Maybe a little bit, I don't know, maybe. Uh, Will we look a little different? Well, I'm hoping so for my sake, but we're not going to look like Jesus. We're not all gods, okay? So however they appeared, glory or otherwise, it's not to say they looked like Jesus. They were just shown in a form that demonstrated they had moved on from earth to their heavenly appearance. We can also say with assurance they did not have their new bodies yet. So whatever these men saw of Moses and Elijah, whatever form they took in front of them for the moment, it was not actually in a new body because the new bodies that we get cannot come before Jesus received his new body. The Bible says he is the first to be resurrected. He had not been resurrected yet by this moment, so they couldn't have been either. So it was either some kind of premonition or or preview of the future that was being shown to these men, or it was in some other way a glorified state absent the body. We don't need to know that detail. Point is, they all look pretty sparkly. That's my way of saying it. Now, this scene, stepping back for a moment, this scene just raises so many interesting questions. And I could take the rest of the morning and talk about it with you. I'm going to have to cut that down. But uh, some of the key questions are, first of all, how did they know these guys were Moses and Elijah? Exactly what would have told you that? They don't have photos. I mean, your photo of Barney at home is no better than they would have had of of Moses or Elijah in their day. It's just, they had no idea what these guys looked like. Did they have name tags? Was there a sign over their head? Somehow they knew, because obviously that was made known to them, which tells you something. It means that it was important for the Lord that these three men know who was standing there, which tells us there's some message in that. There's some meaning in it that needed to be made in the moment. And so really the real question I should ask, among all the various ones we could get into, is what's the purpose of the scene? What's the message? What's Jesus trying to tell these guys? And our answers start by remembering what prompted this whole moment in the first place. It was back when Peter objected to Jesus' dying, and that led Jesus then to challenge his disciples to prioritize the future, eternal realm, and not thinking only of their life here on earth, And in particular, he said to them, you have to be willing to lose your life, so to speak, to gain it. Remember, we covered this last week. It's not about salvation. It's about prioritizing serving Christ now and the sacrifices that it requires now so that in that pleasing of Christ, we might be gaining something in the kingdom that he awards to those who serve him well. A loss here becomes a gain there, a storing up of treasure in heaven, as Jesus says. And when you think about what these guys were gonna have to be willing to sacrifice in their own personal lives, it starts to make more sense why they're seeing this image. For example, they're gonna have to lose, among other things, Jesus' company. You know, they enjoy being with this man, but more than that, he is their Messiah. They no more wanna see Jesus leave than you would wanna think that Jesus could forsake you. But he wasn't forsaking them when he left, he was completing his mission but it felt like something else to them. And so they needed to understand that their losing of life includes letting him go, letting him do as he's been called to do, to die, to resurrect, and to ultimately ascend to the right hand of the Father, leaving them behind for a time. They had to be willing to do that. Secondly, losing their life also meant they're gonna have to be willing to live without the physical kingdom. 
Remember, that was their expectation. The Messiah has come. Aha, the kingdom has come. We're ready for that. If I could tell you right now that tomorrow the kingdom was starting and all of the glory and the perfect life for you that you know is waiting there was about to happen, wouldn't you be excited? It'd be like Christmas on steroids. It would be, it'd be the best thing you could ever imagine. And then if I just yanked it out of your hands and said, nope, not gonna happen right now after all. Now that's not what Jesus did, but that's how they feel. They think they're gonna get something that's not coming yet. And they have to be willing to let that go because they've got a job. There is going to be, in the future, a kingdom on earth, and they will be there as a part of it. Yes, Jesus will be there with them, yes. But in the meantime, they're serving him in something very different in the church, a period of time in which they have to work hard, and there will be trial and tribulation and persecution, things that are not pleasant, but yet things that serve God's purposes and ultimately serve their own interests and how it develops them in their maturity. That's the program they have to be ready for. That's a lot to understand. That is a lot to grasp. And so here you have the picture that tells them that story. First, you see Jesus glorified, which of course communicates that he is divine and that he is eternal. Death is not the end of him. And he's told his disciples, you're gonna see me coming in this glory in a future day. And that's the point. The point is this. As they've been walking with Jesus up until this moment, has he looked like that? No, he hasn't looked like that. He has been ordinary, modest, even unattractive, if you look at what the Old Testament prophets tell us about the coming Messiah, when they describe his appearance, Isaiah particularly, they tell us he had not much of an appearance worth looking at. I mean, I don't know if he was ugly. It kind of feels odd to say that about our Lord, right? But he was intentionally unattractive or uninteresting, let's put it that way. Why? Well, look at his whole life. He was born in a, in a backwater place called Nazareth. Nothing good ever came from Nazareth. He was born in a manger, to poor parents who weren't even married. And then on top of that, he lived this life of, in, of, of, of nothing. No one, he was a carpenter. No one thought about him at all. No training. And you know, I always tell people, if you could have seen Jesus back then, he would have been a lot shorter than you would have expected. You know, it's just unimpressive. That was so that if someone had put faith in Jesus, it wasn't because of appearances. It was because of faith in who he was. And that made the difference. No one was gonna follow him because he looked like Charlton Heston. He was gonna be followed because he was who he said he was. So that's the man they've known. Now they're seeing him in this glorified appearance. What would be the next thing you'd say if you were them, seeing Jesus in this way? I know what I would have said. I would have asked the logical question. If you possess that kind of divinity and glory, why are you not showing it to everyone all the time now? Why are you hiding behind such plain appearances? Well, that's the question I think Jesus wanted these men to consider. And the answer you get is, obviously, in this arrival, your purpose is not to reign in your power. For you have not shown that to people. You are not occupying your divine, glorified state. What then is the purpose of coming in such humble circumstances? It is to die, to be a sacrifice, to be the Lamb of God. That dual nature of the Messiah's ministry, first a suffering servant, later a crowning king, a conquering king, that twofold nature is represented in one really perfect passage of the Old Testament. Two verses, back to back. In Zechariah, chapter nine, verse nine, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then the next verse. 
And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and I will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Wow, on a donkey to ruling the whole earth in two verses. Now in hindsight, we understand what we just read. Zechariah reveals the twofold nature of the Messiah's ministry, that he starts humble on a donkey and he ends up ruling the whole earth. What he doesn't make clear in just those verses is that there is, oh, about 2,000 years between them. We see that now, but they didn't see that then. And that twofold nature that is of Jesus first doing one and then doing the other is something these guys needed to understand because do you know where their ministry takes place? Between those two moments. They needed to know that. Showing him in his glory, communicated, I'm clearly not there yet. Secondly, those two biblical figures play an important role in communicating to these men the mission that they have in the church and how it will play out. First, the conversation that we hear taking place between Jesus and Elijah and Moses is an important lesson for these men. Now, Matthew didn't tell us what was being said, but Luke does. And in Luke's gospel, we hear that they were speaking of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But here's the key to understanding that. The Greek word that Matthew, or in this case, Luke, uses in that conversation, the, the conversation about his, quote, departure, the Greek word for departure, exodus. Now, think about the exodus for a moment. Exodus is a clear reference back to the Passover celebration associated with that. So what we're hearing is this. They were discussing Jesus' fulfillment of the Passover in Jerusalem when he is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of the nation, for the whole world. So what that conversation was meant to confer to these men is there is a purpose in Jesus' death, and you only have to understand the Passover to understand the purpose. If you put the two together, you get it. So in the case of the original Passover, the literal one that Moses took Israel through, remember he was freeing a nation from physical slavery to Pharaoh, and in the process of the Passover, they escaped the physical death of the 10th plague when all of the firstborn were taken in Egypt. Well, now you have Jesus who provides his own exodus, that is to say, he gives all nations freedom from slavery to sin and from the spiritual death that sin requires. So he is our Moses, only on a much greater scale, obviously. His death would not be a sign of defeat, but a fulfillment of that feast, which instantly makes the whole thing much more understandable to these guys. And then furthermore, these two particular men, Moses and Elijah. You know, Moses was the redeemer of God's people. Obviously, his connection to the Exodus is helpful as well. But when you think about how his life went, there's another aspect of the picture here. Remember how he died? He died as the nation of Israel was preparing to get into the promised land, but they had not got there yet. And at a point when he dies, we read this in Deuteronomy 34, 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. So Moses, standing next to Jesus, becomes a type, a picture of a couple of things. First, of the fact that his death preceded the arrival of Israel into the kingdom, picturing the promised land, rather, which pictures the kingdom. Secondly, in his death, his body was never found. In his death, his body did not remain behind. What is the picture? Well, clearly, the picture is of Christ's first coming. His death will precede the kingdom, and his death will not leave his body on earth. 
No one will know where his body is. And then there's Elijah. And the Bible says Elijah's life ends also in a very interesting way. You may know the story of Elijah's death from 2 Kings. He's walking with his protege, a man named Elisha, who was gonna replace him. And as they're walking together, we hear this, 2 Kings 2.11. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. He's famous for having not passed through death, it appears, and having heads straight to heaven. And then the Bible says something interesting about his, his future. In Malachi 4.5, we're told that Elijah comes back to earth. In Malachi 4.5, we read, Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so they, I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, we're gonna have more to say about that moment in a future lesson because the disciples ask Jesus about it later in chapter 17. So we'll just wait for that. But here's the point for this morning. Elijah's sudden ascension into heaven and his return in the last days of the age picture the second-fold nature of Jesus' ministry, doesn't it? That Jesus would ascend into heaven, be gone for a time to return at the end of the age. So you have, in this moment, Jesus standing next to these two men because if, as a Jewish man, they would have known the things of Elijah and the things of Moses, and if they understood those things and they heard the conversation and they put two and five and 20 together, they could have come out of that moment with a very good understanding of, oh, death is playing a role here in the plan. There's a separation in his reign from his present day. That separation is something like what happened with Moses or something of what like happened with Elijah. And Jesus stands between them so as to say, I am central to this plan. These other men are pictures of me. And that picture goes even deeper. As I said, we could do this all day. I won't, but you see these men present in glory, standing next to Jesus, and as a disciple who's been worrying about Jesus' death and what that might mean for him personally, he now realizes, wait a minute, neither of those guys got into the kingdom. Both of them died before the kingdom came, and yet they're standing there in glory. Well, self-evidently, I don't need to worry that I might die before the kingdom shows up, apparently that's not stopping God from bringing me into glory. Apparently I don't have to see the kingdom in my lifetime to be part of the kingdom when it comes. These men give them that assurance. Now after all of that, predictably, the guys don't quite get it. And in Matthew 11, uh, 17, verse four, look at what Peter says. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Do you ever get the sense that Peter just likes to fill silent spaces with something? Uh, Because I do that, I know the feeling. You know, you feel like, I think I should just say something here, guys. And he suggests they make booths. Now, what a booth is, biblically speaking, it's a tent. It's like if you go tent camping, it's a tent. Temporary living quarters. And Peter understood something of this moment, he just gets ahead of himself. He understood that if this is the kingdom, we ought to be building booths. Why? Well, because in the law that God gave Israel, he established that there would be a festival or a feast celebrated every year at the end of the year, at the end of the harvest, and that feast, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, same word, would be a a feast that commemorates something from Israel's history. It commemorates their wandering in the desert when they left Egypt in the Exodus. They had no permanent homes. They were living in tents while they moved around, and God gave them this feast to forever remember 
what it was like to be in that circumstance with God living among them. He lived in a tent too. His glory occupied the tent of meeting. And they moved together in the desert for a period of time. And that would be an annual celebration. It memorializes the wanderings. But we are also told in another prophet's book, Zechariah, that at the outset of the kingdom, at the beginning of the kingdom period on earth, the first feast that will be celebrated is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. Why? Because like all the feasts on Israel's calendar, it always has a dual purpose. It memorializes something of the past, in each case they all do, but they also look forward to events of the future. They have a prophetic side to them as well. You get an example of that when you look at the Passover. Remember in the Passover, uh, the lamb of God, or the lamb rather of Israel, was sacrificed and the blood used to put on the door so that the angel of death did not bring death to the people of Israel, right? By the blood of the lamb, they were saved. Well, today, the memorial of Passover is still looking back to that day of Exodus. But you know, and we know all together, that it also had that prophetic forward-looking aspect. It pictured Jesus when he came and was the lamb of God. All seven of the feasts on the calendar have both a rear-view perspective, if you will, and a future view. And the Feast of Tabernacles is the feast on the Jewish calendar that pictures the inauguration of the kingdom, the start of the kingdom, when we will dwell with God in the kingdom together. And so the very first event of the kingdom is we're all gonna celebrate the Feast of Booths together. Peter knew this. He knew it from what he read in Zechariah. And so, good idea, let's build booths. Wrong timing. It wasn't happening then because the kingdom wasn't happening then. And so he got ahead of the story. He asks to set up booths. And as I said, he starts to inject into this important silent moment his own thoughts. And I think what the Lord did at that point was to say, Father, we gotta shut him up because he's not catching it. So verse five, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. That effectively shut up Peter. And here you see the father injecting a word of understanding so that they might get on track with the moment. No, Peter, this is not the moment you build booths. This is not the moment you're thinking. Right idea, just not yet. In fact, the whole point of this was to tell you that the kingdom wasn't coming yet. The point is, there's a delay. And in the meantime, here's what obedience to Christ looks like. If you wanted to know, Peter, what to do, it's not build booths, it's listen. Listen to Jesus. That is the duty of a Christian in the age of the kingdom program. It turns into action, yes. It moves into service in various ways, of course. But it starts with listen to him. And not just when he's around them on earth, but after he's gone. When he reigns from his place at the right hand of the Father. We're still to listen to him. That's the mission. So we don't worry about our life. We don't worry about his departure. We don't worry about when he's coming back. We're interested in those things, but they are not the principal concern of a Christian. What is the principal concern? If you understand him, that is what's represented in the word of God, you're in a position to obey him and serve him. Listen to him. Everything else he takes care of. And once more, those two men standing next to Jesus reinforce that message. The law of God was given to Israel through Moses. And so in Israel's way of thinking, Moses comes to picture the law. They often use the word law and Moses interchangeably. Moses is the law. And Elijah was considered the greatest prophet of all the prophets God sent to Israel. So he's the poster child for all prophets. You say Elijah, you could just refer to all prophets by calling him Elijah. 
In fact, Israel had come to the point of calling their Bible, as we call it the Old Testament, they called it the Law and the Prophets. That phrase to a Jew was the same thing as saying the Bible. The Law and the Prophets. So imagine the picture. You have standing in the center of Moses and this prophet, Elijah, or as I would say, Jesus is in the middle of the Law and the Prophets. The Word is the Word of God. And standing there, Before these men, the Father says, listen to him. That's your duty. So let's summarize as we finish. What was this scene about? It communicated the twofold nature of Jesus' earthly ministry, that it must start humbly before it finishes in glory. And it explained the purpose of his coming death, which was to fulfill the feast of the Passover. And it showed that Jesus would begin his reign. His power would be evident right from the start, but in the heavenly realm, not on earth. It would come later on earth. And finally, it was reassuring these men that their own future glory was not in jeopardy. It would come in time as well. But maybe most of all, it reinforced the duty of every disciple in the meantime while Jesus is gone. And our duty is to listen to his testimony in the word of God that we don't need to be walking with him to know what he wants us to do. But at the same time, his absence is not license to ignore him. You know, we did that with our parents. They left us at home alone for a while. They went out to dinner. That was our chance to do whatever we wanted and then clean up about 10 minutes before they were due to come back. Jesus has cameras. He knows what you're doing. More than Santa. And we want to be obedient from start to finish. We want to know what he wants us to do so we can do it, and we do it to please him. That's the kingdom program. And we share what we know in all these things with anyone we can because the key purpose in the program is to grow a nation, a citizenry of people who will walk into that kingdom together on the day that it opens up. And we're part of how God provides for that community, how he builds that community. This church is one very small little cog in that machinery that Christ has built called the church. But we're important to him. Let's do our mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Father, that we will do the mission as you've called us to do with a heart that wants to obey, with ears that are ready to listen. And Father, as we do that, I pray you give us a harvest. Not for our own sake, but Father, It's so encouraging when we step out in obedience and we see the fruit of it. You're the one, Father, who brings the harvest. You're the one, Father, who turns hearts, and we know that. Do it through our hands. Give us that privilege, that blessing, Father. And as we grow in number, as we grow in strength, however you provide, I pray that it would just encourage us all the more to be that much better disciples. Never let us be satisfied in our time here or in the life we've created, but, Father, always looking forward to the eternal, to the kingdom that is soon to appear, so that we might please you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.